Hey, folks, this week's episode is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus, where you can find the awesome course devoted to the early history of baseball in this country. It's called Play Ball, The Rise of Baseball as America's Pastime. This plus tons of other great coursework at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash good seats. Again, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash good seats for your free month of The Great Courses Plus service. And now... Here's the show. Well, Satch, I think uh, myself and a lot of other people Sunday got a big throw when they watched out here pitch those last two innings against Buffalo in that first game. Yes, Jack, that was my first try, you know, since we started to plan out there. But I wasn't quite at myself at that time. All I had it was control. I didn't have nothing on my fastballs. <laughs> you looked pretty good to me. And I think that a lot of people figure, well, maybe this is Satch's last year. Maybe he's not going to be as good as he was last year. But I think you showed him out there Sunday that you're just as good, if not better, than you were last year. Well, I try to keep up like that, but, Jack, I don't think this is my last year. I, I think I can play baseball about 15 or 20 more years. Well, I'm going to keep up with Lander. <laughs> the, way, the way you throw that ball, I think you'll do all right. Another thing, as long as you got to pitch against guys like Easter, you'll do all right, too, won't you? Yes, I figure I know Easter a little, but he's going to probably get on me one, maybe one or two times this year, but he's going to have to hit what I want him to throw. <laughs> Sash, do you like to pitch down here in Miami where it's good and hot? Yes, I like it. I like it very well down here. I can just get off the bench and pitch down here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's this I hear about you having a new pitch this year? Yes, I got a new one, but every time I go in, we don't have but one run, and see, I can't show nothing up right there. And I got to go down with what I've been had for a couple of spells, you know. That's the fastball. Uh, let me ask you this, Satch. You know, a great many years ago, not too many years ago, you pitched for Cleveland up there and did a tremendous job for them. Do you feel that right now that you can throw that ball just as good as you could then? Yes, I do, Jack. I really believe I can throw it just like I did then. I throw it a little better because I don't got a little oil and I know more men. See, everybody come up on me. It's the first decade, and this is my about myself. Dude, what about the big leagues? Do you think you'd ever like to go back to pitch science? Yes, I would like to go back because everybody, Jack, think I'm so old and I, I cannot do this and I cannot do the other. And I want to show them that I can still play baseball regardless if they don't know my age. If they think I'm 107, it's still all right. Well, I don't know how old you are, Sash, and maybe the other ball players don't either, but that fastball of yours looks just as good as it did many years ago. Jack, I'm going to tell you the truth. I don't think it but a very few people in the United States know my age or where I come from even now, let alone know my age, okay. because I've been playing ever since I was a kid. I never had a job. But still, they say I'm 100 years old, and everybody I meet, they say they played ball with me. Some of them's 100, some of them's 85 and 90. <laughs> Satch, what do you have to have to get uh, be a real good pitcher, we'll say, today? First thing is control, to throw the ball away you want to throw it. You don't need but one ball. I hear kids with a slider, knuckleball, and a screwball, and a nightmare, and a 40 creep, and all those different balls. But if you just got one that you can get over any time you want and throw where you want it, Jack, you don't need but That's the right. one. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hiya, hiya. How you doing? Tim Hanlon here. What's going on? It's uh, Good Seat Still Available. Yeah, it's our Curious Little Podcast. It's our journey each and every week into what used to be in professional sports. Thank you for coming into our little web of uh, intrigue and uh, downloading us and putting us in your earbuds and giving us a listen. We appreciate you finding us. And uh, we uh, we look forward to presenting this week's episode. Uh, as we veer back into the minor leagues, we don't do it very often. Uh, we try to, Lord knows there's enough uh, stories in the realm of top tier pro sports and teams and leagues and 
relative defunctness or relocations and all that kind of stuff. But we, you know, we certainly don't like to ignore a good story when we when we stumble across one. And this week uh, in the minors, we have one, and uh, it's the it's the story of the Miami Marlins, or at least one of the original versions of such, uh, from the late 1950s when in the uh, AAA uh, International League, the Miami Marlins were basically kind of the first real significant push uh, for uh, Major League uh, Baseball consideration, I guess you could call it, uh, in the uh, metropolitan area of Miami and South Florida. Uh, of course, we now know from uh, uh, the, uh, the last number of decades, the, uh, the the Miami Marlins, they started as the Florida Marlins in, uh, what was it, 1993 uh, in the National League and obviously a couple of uh, World Series championships along the way. Uh, playing in that what is now uh, Hard Rock Stadium and 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 uh, now and of course uh, Marlins Park since 2012. Uh, a lot of people sort of forget the fact that the Marlins, the name Marlins, uh, and baseball are almost synonymous with each other for uh, decades prior uh, to the uh, the major league uh, uh, debut of what is now the uh, the Miami Marlins. And we're going to get into uh, the late 1950s version of the AAA, the International League. Uh, with our guest this week, Sam Zigner, uh, who has written the authoritative uh, book, uh, of course, uh, about that period of time called The Forgotten Marlins. And we're going to get into some very interesting and colorful stories uh, about this. So let's call it the uh, let's call it really the first real professional uh, incarnation of the Marlins name and franchise uh, and frankly, setting the table for what. Uh, was, uh, you know, to be considered as uh, Major League Baseball's uh, readiness, I guess, uh, for Miami and, uh, frankly, Miami's readiness for a Major League team. And some very there's a ton of Major League-ness to this uh, this version of the of the Marlins. And, and you heard some of it uh, in that clip uh, just a few moments ago. That, of course, was the uh, the legendary uh, Baseball Hall of Famer, uh, uh, Leroy Robert Satchel Page who had a few years, three as a matter of fact, uh, of uh, uh, of experience with this Miami Marlins franchise. That clip that you heard uh, came from, let's see, it was 1958, and uh, it is courtesy of the Lynn and Lewis Wolfson Florida Moving Image Archives located at Miami-Dade College. It's a fascinating trove of of great stuff about Miami history. Uh, that was an interview that, that, uh, that Satchel did uh, with uh, WTVJ Television's uh, sportscaster extraordinaire Jack Cummins uh, in the early days of the 1958 season. This would have been Satchel Page's third season with the Marlins franchise. Uh, and um, you have to remember that uh, that Page was, uh, uh, you know, obviously a, a decades long legend in the Negro Leagues and had a few cups of coffee uh, in the majors prior. Uh, but I don't want to say he was on his way down, so to speak. I mean, because it's clear. I mean, if you look at the 1956 uh, season with the Marlins that uh, that Page uh, pitched, uh, he had an amazing uh, year that year where uh, he was, I think it was 11 and four and uh, uh, had an ERA of, of under two. Um, he was still had quite a bit going on, even though he was uh, in his early 50s, uh, that's obviously debatable. Nobody seems to really know just how old he was overall, uh, nor at the time. But it's safe to say that, that Satchel Page was in his early 50s, uh, maybe even inching to his mid-50s at the time. But he still had it, uh, not just a fastball, but just an amazing uh, array of controlled 
uh, pitches and, and unique approaches to uh, to play in the game and 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 uh, and uh, serving the ball up. Uh, and and it was uh, dazzling, uh, even in a minor league fashion uh, with the Miami Marlins. And frankly, I think that was kind of really the last sort of consecutive uh, set of seasons uh, that Page played. Uh, he went on to barnstorm a little bit afterwards and and, and had a, a an interesting little Kansas City Athletic uh, sort of uh, uh, bow of uh, of graciousness uh, in one game with uh, in the uh, in the latter part of the sixties, I think nineteen fifty sixty five it was. But uh, but Satchel Paige, just one of the very interesting little stories uh, and amazing uh, uh, entrees into the history of the Miami Marlins of the Triple A International League. That's our. Uh, conversation with this week's guest, Sam Zigner, coming up in just a couple of moments. It's fascinating stuff, and uh, it's really, really interesting, and uh, we look forward to presenting it to you uh, in mere moments. But before we do that, we have to, of course, uh, tip our Marlins cap. Uh, in gratitude to our friends this week at uh, Streaker Sports, one of our longtime sponsors. And we love it when you uh, check them out uh, at streakersports.com, and we especially love it when you not only check them out, but use the promo code good seats for all of your purchases at streakersports.com because you're going to get 10% off all of your purchases there. Again, at streakersports.com. They fancy themselves, uh, and rightly so, as the purveyor of sports culture. And uh, you will be uh, amazed and impressed with all the great stuff that they've got. Uh, they've got cool stuff um, just across a whole wide array of sports stuff. Look, if you're looking for that. Uh, 1994 uh, Team USA uh, World Cup denim uh, red, white, and blue garish jersey uh, that Adidas put out uh, that, uh, you know, at the time seemed pretty cool, but in retrospect is pretty pretty garish for sure. Uh, they've got that. Uh, they've got really cool other stuff. They've got, you know, uh, shirts that commemorate the uh, the catchphrase of, of college basketball announcer extraordinaire's uh, uh, Bill Raftery, when his uh, his famous phrase "onions," uh, the great shirts that commemorate that uh, there too. They've got a Caddyshack collection for God's sakes. It's you know what better way to celebrate golf's best ever movie? Um, but of course, StreakerSports.com is not just that stuff, but it's also their I would argue probably unmatched collection of stuff, uh, t-shirts and other wear from. All kinds of defunct leagues. And that's obviously the stuff that we love the most. Uh, and uh, here is just a sampling of the leagues that you'll find uh, represented. All the teams and and, and franchises and, and uh, uh, iterations. You like stuff from the ABA, the American Basketball Association? They've got it. How about the Major Indoor Lacrosse League? Uh-huh. Pro Beach Hockey or Roller Hockey International? Those two are there in the defunct leagues section. Uh, at streakersports.com. The North American Soccer League, well represented. You're going to find shirts from the USFL and the WFL if you're a football fan. And of course, if you're into the old World Hockey Association, you will find a ton of great shirts there too. All of them for you to uh, consider, make a purchase, and uh, hopefully many of them uh, at streakersports.com. And those are the uh, the various defunct leagues, and I'm sure more to come. And make sure, of course, when you find some stuff that you want, Make sure you use that promo code GOODSEATS and receive, courtesy of us and StreakerSports.com, 10% off all your purchase. One more time, StreakerSports.com, promo code GOODSEATS, 10% off all of your purchases. Uh, go there early and go there often. We love them, and you will too, StreakerSports.com. And uh, we love you, of course, for listening. 
uh, regularly, but of course, especially for this episode, uh, this conversation coming up now with our new pal, Sam Zigner, as we talk about the old and original triple A affiliated International League Miami Marlins coming right up. Enjoy. You know, I'm hugely curious. I, I did not grow up in South Florida. Uh, I, you know, I've been to Miami plenty of times. I, I, I certainly know of the, shall let's call them with all due respect, the uh, relatively woeful Miami Marlins of the Major League Baseball scene today. Uh, but what I, I didn't know, and I'm fascinated to learn more about, as uh, as you have uh, put out in your book, and I'm sure you have a little bit more knowledge even that that that, that, that book uh, sort of implies, uh, is this sort of uh, Miami Marlins franchise name that uh, predated uh, the current version of the Marlins, and in particular, uh, this uh, AAA International League version in the late 50s, which, if I'm not mistaken, was seems like it was kind of almost the dress rehearsal for the team that uh, now exists on the Major League variety. Is, is that a fair way to sort of set it up? Yeah, I think it's pretty fair. Actually, if you go back a little further, when uh, Aliman, Jose Aliman, who was only 17 years old and owned the Miami Sun Sox. His dad built Miami Stadium. And as a 17-year-old, he owned the team. Uh, there was even talk about then of, of moving up, if not to a higher classification. A little bit of talk about, you know, this going to be a Major League Baseball coming to the, te- the city someday. So that was really, that talk was going back as far as, you know, 1949, but it got more serious in 1956, when the Marlins, original Marlins, started, that was a AAA affiliate. And then, uh, you know, of course, we had Bill Vec here in 56. And so there was thoughts of going that way. But unfortunately, you know, the franchise after the first year kind of tailed off. And, and so it took another, what, when they folded in 1960, 33 years before that came to fruition. Well, it's also, we, we've had a couple of conversations uh, with our pals Cesar Brioso and, and, and a few others on sort of uh, Cuba, of course, having some kind of effect too. And so I suspect that uh, a lot of sort of the the sort of rumblings of, of Miami's readiness for top tier, you know, major league baseball sort of sort of emanated from not only some of the minor league stuff, but clearly uh, spring training uh, in and around the state, as well as the influence, I guess, of Cuba you know, somewhat nearby and it's passion for baseball as well. I, I guess sort of you throw all that together. It's it's hard, not hard to imagine why at least a a, a, a minor league team of significance like the uh, the late 50s uh, version of the Miami Marlins is is worth a shot. Right. Because I think a lot of people maybe had stars in their eyes for that going forward. Oh, so true. So true. And with the uh, you know, they had that natural rivalry with Havana going back to the Florida International League days, going back clear to 1946. But uh, I totally agree with you. Miami had in their head, there was always this feeling in the city, as even in the early days of the minor league, that they wanted to keep moving up in classification and moving forward. And uh, even as early as, I think it was the late 50s, early 60s, when the Continental League was talking about a third major league, there was even talk of Miami being part of that uh, Continental League, if unfortunately never came to pass, but they would have been a possible member of that league. Yeah, and we had a conversation uh, as well with uh, with Russ Buhite on that uh, a number of uh, months ago, and and indeed, yes, uh, clearly the Miami uh, major metropolitan area one of one of many 
that at the time, circa, what, 1960 or so, uh, you know, didn't have Major League Baseball. And, and it was much more of a ripe, I guess, field of uh, of cities out there that, uh, you know, arguably could uh, could be thought of as having. And, and we all know what sort of transpire for that. But, but before we get there, let, let me let's back up for a second. Why? Uh, so, you, so this, you know, you the, this book that you've written arguably is the uh, the seminal sort of work about the, this team around this time. Where did you get the interest in documenting and going going deep into the history of this this part of the uh, the Miami Marlins name franchise uh, in the first place? What uh, what drove your interest? OK, well, I came here in 2001. That's when Barbara and I got married. Barbara is my wife and also the co-author on the book. And, of course, being a baseball fan like I am, I'm very avid, and I wanted to find out more about, really, initially, the Miami Marlins, Florida Marlins at the time. And so as I began to learn more about the team itself, because you got this feeling in Miami, it was like baseball didn't begin until 1993, unless you spoke with some people who are really, really major baseball fans. And as I get to looking into it, uh, I got more and more interested in it, found out more about it. And the more I talked to people, most people didn't have really any knowledge of anything before 1993. So I began to look into it, and I was especially interested in the 56 to 60 Miami Marlins, which were the first Miami Marlins. And I discovered, you know, that Satchel Paige pitched for three seasons here. Uh, Bill Veck was instrumental in launching the team in 1956. And I literally, as I started going through newspaper accounts and reading books, uh, I talked to some of the original ball players that were Miami Marlins. I just basically I found this treasure trove of information. And, and what characters that the original Miami Marlins had, a lot of it was because of Bill Veck's influence, you know. It was nobody knew that Satchel Page was going to pitch there. And he comes in on the initial evening uh, when opening day they played the Buffalo Bisons. None of the players knew he was going to be on the team. And they had arranged for a helicopter to land that was supposed to land before the game. But because they had turned the lights out in the stadium, to introduce the new players, it was a, a big shindig opening night, as you can imagine, with Bill Veck running it. They had all kinds of uh, extra entertainment. But uh, the helicopter was delayed. So it come around the second inning, and people are watching. You had these women dressed in their finest white dresses and the men in ties and so forth. This was a, a big gala affair in Miami at the time, at Miami Stadium. And this helicopter, one of those bubble-topped helicopters, is flying around the stadium and slowly starts circling down. And uh, the ball players they scatter as it comes down, it lands behind the pitcher's mound. Uh, somewhere, you know, different accounts of who was actually there, somewhere around second base or just behind second base in center field. But the blades blow all of this dirt into the audience on the third base side, and the fans are literally blanketed in this red dirt <laughs> and um so everybody you know it's a you know of course bill veck is all about you know the promotion and, and making a big splash and out of the helicopter comes this black slender gentleman he's wearing the miami marlins uniform whites with the blue and orange trim he's got the satin blue jacket and people recognize you know who are baseball fans oh my gosh it's satchel page and they make the announcement over the intercom, and the place went crazy, you know. 
And uh, so Satchel Page, they introduce him. He meets his new manager, Don Osborne, and he immediately goes down to the bullpen. And in the bullpen, they have a rocking chair set up. And this was kind of his thing when he was in Miami and he traveled around the International League. They always would set up a rocking chair at each stadium for him because, you know, there was always in those days the question about his age. And, you know, he was the ultimate promoter of himself. So it was a mystery. You know, was he 60? Was he 45? Was he 50? And actually, when he arrived in Miami, he was 49 years old, just shy of 50. So, um, you know, after the initial game, he didn't pitch the opening game. And the manager, who was Don Osborne at the time, he wasn't sure that he wanted to use Page. And he actually expressed to Bill Veck that, you know, I don't know if this guy's over the hill, he's older. You know, I don't I don't really think we want to really use him. So Bill Veck threw down uh, one of his um, great ideas, and he did this with the Cleveland Indians with Lou Boudreau. He said, uh, I'll pay you, pick out your nine best hitters, okay? And if Satchel Page doesn't get, if, uh, well, let me reword this. If any of them gets a hit, Don, you have the option of whether you want to keep him or we'll let him go. So uh, they line up the nine best hitters, and Satchel Page, according to Bill Beck, struck out all nine of them, much like what happened with the Cleveland Indians and Lou Boudreau in 1948. So once Don Osborne saw what, what quality pitcher this guy was, he immediately put him into the rotation. Uh, he was what they would call the Sunday pitcher in the International League at the time, when they played Sunday doubleheaders, they'd have a nine-inning ga- uh, nine game and a seven-inning game. And so Satchel would always pitch the seven-inning game, and then he would pitch uh, important games as the season went on and was used in relief. But the amazing thing about Page, when he turned 50 that year, by the end of the year, he finished the season with an 11-4 and record and a 1.85 ERA for a guy who was 50 years old, which was just amazing and arguably the best pitcher on the staff. Well, no, I, and, and you also mentioned, too, not only not only arguably best pitcher, but also, you know, you mentioned his age, right? I, I think <laughs> I, I think people were conjecturing about his age, you know, even decades prior, it seems, uh, going back to the Negro Leagues. But, you know, I, actually, I want to sort of circle back on, on, on Bill Veck in, in this case. And we jump around on this show, so, you know, don't worry about it not being linear. Uh, but to me, it's fascinating – you know, we all know, of course, the, the showman that, that that was Bill Veck, um, for sure. He very much was interested uh, in the history of the game. He was fascinated and uh, uh, amazed by uh, players in the Negro Leagues. He was uh, clearly somebody uh, who saw great talent uh, in the Negro Leagues and, and, and wondered aloud and behind the scenes as to how he could, in his own way, shapes and forms, uh, help integrate uh, Major League Baseball over time. I, I'm really curious. So the the whole franchise, right, is an affiliate at the time of the Philadelphia Phillies, which Vec had an ownership stake in, right? And I think, if I'm not mistaken, there was some conjecture around the time of his ownership of the Phillies around wanting to, frankly, help integrate the the, the sport by bringing in major Negro leaguers like Page uh, on the Phillies franchise. And I'm guessing that Page, you know, uh, was considered at least at some point to be a Phillies player, but uh, maybe uh, had not been given that uh, that chance at the major league level, and and 
was resigned, if you will, to play in Miami. Maybe you can help clear up some of that, uh, those assumptions that I just stumbled through. Sure. Uh, well, there was a conjecture in 1944, well, it was called the Philadelphia Blue Jays, I believe then, but they were essentially the Phillies during the war years. And, you know, there was a great uh, loss of talent. Many of the ball players were playing overseas, and the major leagues were populated by either major leaguers who had been already played and were coming back or exceptionally young players or 4F players who weren't physically able to serve in the armed services for whatever reason. And so there's some conjecture whether this was really happened or not, but he was going to form a team and bring in Negro League players to stock the Philadelphia roster. Of course, at the time, Philadelphia had had a long history of losing seasons and he was going to stock the team with some really quality Negro League players. Uh, it never came to be, and there's some conjecture whether it really happened or Vec, uh, you know, uh, over-illuminated what actually happened. But by the time he had got to Miami and how the whole Miami situation worked out, he had, when they had moved the St. Louis Browns franchise, which he had owned up until 53, I believe it was, 1953, um, the establishment of Major League Baseball had kind of forced him out when they moved the team to Baltimore and made him the Orioles. So at the time, he actually was uh, considering purchasing Barnum and Bailey Circus. Now, how the Marlins and how he came in to be with the Marlins was a gentleman by the name of Sid Solomon Jr. and his business partner, Elliot Stein, who had ties to the old St. Louis Browns, were traveling to Columbus, Ohio in 1955. This was in the December of 1955 at the American Association Winter Meetings, which was a AAA league at the time. And there was talk about transferring Toledo, it was a Milwaukee Braves franchise, I believe, at the time, to Miami, which would never come to fruition. But at the time, uh, Sid Solomon Jr. and Elliot Stein were in a restaurant and unbeknownst to them, sitting at the table on the other side of them was a gentleman by the name of Martin Haskey, who owned the Syracuse Chiefs. And I guess he was eavesdropping on their conversation. And according to Vec, you know, Sid Solomon Jr. was was perplexed why a team would not move, especially the Toledo franchise, which was struggling, to Miami. He said, if I could own a major league team, or, I'm sorry, a minor league team, I would move them to Miami. And according to Vec, Martin Haskey leaned over the table, tapped him on the shoulder, and he said, Sir, you are, can now own a minor league baseball team. And so I'm kind of giving you the shortest version of this. But they negotiated with the Syracuse Chiefs owner, Martin Haskey, who they eventually agreed on a $100,000 selling price, and Sid Solomon Jr. moved the team to Miami. But Sid Solomon Jr. realized that he didn't really have the experience or the, the know-how to run this team. So he went to his friend Bill Veck, who they were friends, had been for many years, and he approached Bill Veck about uh, running the club. And the interesting thing about it is Bill Veck said he would do it, but he would not accept any pay. He would do it for free. Bill Veck was looking more long-term because he was looking to get back into Major League Baseball, which he would eventually accomplish that goal. And um, so Bill Veck came to Miami and negotiated a deal with Miami Stadium to lease the stadium. They had some difficulties uh, 
which would spring up later with the Miami affiliate and the Phillies affiliate down here. And uh, he eventually worked out a deal, two-year lease for the stadium. And then he began to stock his players. Uh, the Phillies supplied most of the young players. But, of course, Bill Veck, you know, he brought in some of the veteran players. As you will find out, he brought in Satchel Page. Later, he would bring in uh, Cal Abrams. Uh, Sid Gordon was there in the beginning. Uh, interestingly, at the time, Jimmy Fox, who was managing the University of Miami baseball team, he brought him on as a hitting coach and first base coach at home games. And, um, you know, Beck, his goal was to to um, to uh, make a winner out of Miami right off the bat. And he was very successful right away. Uh, opening day, they drew almost 9,000 fans. And, uh, of course, the le- you know, the legendary game happened later that summer, the Orange Bowl game that Bill Vec organized drew over 50,000 fans, which Satchel Page pitched in that game. Yeah, so there, there's a great picture of uh, of that. We'll have that on our website uh, around this uh, this episode and in social media and stuff. That 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 game that was played uh, in the Orange Bowl was that the only one from your recollection or your investigation that that was played in the Orange Bowl. This was uh, the one I'm looking for is a it's an old Miami Herald file photo from August seventh, nineteen fifty six. I think the official total was fifty one thousand one hundred seventy three fans. It reminds me this picture. I'll let you answer it in a second. But this picture reminds me very much of uh, those early years uh, of the Dodgers in Los Angeles when they were playing in the Coliseum, right? That very short fence. And, you know, it's it's obviously not built for baseball. It's a football stadium. Uh, but uh, it packed to the gills with people who are arguably thirsty for baseball uh, of, a, of a high quality level there in Miami. Well, coming up to the game, Bill Veck really, who was the master promoter, he got well, everything was in the newspapers. He went around the city promoting the game, and um, he arranged with the Orange Bowl to shoehorn a baseball field within the Orange Bowl. What his goal was was to break the minor league record for attendance, which was set in New Jersey City, uh, Jersey City. I think it was during the war years, during the forties. Ah, the old, and the old he wanted to, stadium in Jersey City. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, he brought in entertainers. You had like Cobb Calloway, Margaret Whiting, Merv Griffin. He, of course, brought in the usual Dixieland bands around the stadium. Uh, It was highly promoted, highly promoted. And most of the funds went to charity for a children's organization. So uh, the tickets were a reasonable price. He was promoting Satchel Page. And it just really took off. It really did. And the people in Miami, the citizens, really got behind this. As you said, over 50,000 people packed into the Orange Bowl. You know, the outfield, they had special ground rules for the game because down the lines it was only like 215 feet. It was like 265 or 275 to center field. And I, I, when I spoke with Bob Bowman at the time, he said that he literally – he was playing so shallow in the outfield that one of the Columbus, they were playing the Columbus Jets, hit a ball to him in right field, and he threw the runner out of first base. That's how shallow he had to play. But uh, interestingly enough, there was only one home run in the game, which was hit by Benny Tompkins. Page was his usual dominating self. He did tell Vec, because Vec had ideas of flying him in on a helicopter again, (laughs) and he told Vec, no, 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 I'm not going to do that anymore. And uh, over Satchel's career, 
he was always hesitant to get in an airplane as it was. So uh, he pitched the game. Uh, Bob Kuzala pitched the game for the Columbus Jets. That was his opponent. And um, it was a great evening because Miami ended up winning the game and 50,000-plus fans went home were ecstatic. And at the time, the Marlins were in a pennant race. I think they were only a game or a game and a half out of first place. So there was a lot of excitement around that, too. Why, why do you think that was the only game played there, uh, given how successful it was and the crowd and all that kind of stuff? Is it just too logistically complicated to, to, to do it on a more regular basis? Yes, I believe so. And, of course, once the novelty of the one game wore off, they wouldn't have attracted that kind of a crowd again. Uh, you really needed the whole uh, plan was to fill the Orange Bowl for the one game to break the attendance record. So logistically, you know, the size of the field, for one thing, would not have uh, been up to International League standards. They did approve it for this one game, but uh, it was not up to the standards of AAA baseball. As I said, they had special ground rules and so forth. Uh, even to get a home run, you had to hit it in to way into the grandstands and so forth. But... Um, well, that's yeah. that's it. I mean, you know, the 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 park that the team actually played in on, uh, you know, aside from that one off, that Miami Stadium, right? Um, what was was quite a, quite a gem of a, of a ballpark uh, for its time, no? Oh, Miami Stadium was a state of the art ballpark, and in fact, when it opened in August of 1949, it was considered the best minor league ballpark in the nation, and actually. Its amenities were better than some, if not most, major league ballparks. And it had the unique characteristic. It had a cantilever roof that went over the grandstand without support of any kind of beams. So when you sat at Miami Stadium, no matter where you sat, you had an unobstructed view of the ball field. Uh, at the time, they had, uh, though they weren't called that, they had suites within the what would be the press box area above the stadium where players and visitors could stay during the game. They had a full-out bar uh, for fans to go up, take the elevator up, and they could observe a few adult beverages. Uh, the locker rooms were wood floors with uh, tile. It was an upgrade from what most minor leaguers would have experienced, and quite a few of the guys that played on the Miami Sun Sox at the time said, I've arrived. This is better than if I played in double or triple A. So uh, it was really, really a state-of-the-art park. It had the great big letters on the front, Miami Stadium, and orange, bright orange letters uh, lit up in neon. Uh, just It was just a gorgeous stadium, the palm trees behind the outfield fence, and it was it was really a gem of a stadium. It really was. All right, time to pay a couple of bills around here. Uh, we welcome uh, with open arms our friends at uh, The Great Courses Plus. How can I best describe The Great Courses Plus? How about this? Unlimited video learning with the world's greatest professors. Yeah, it's an amazing video streaming site uh, available in app form. You can watch it online. Uh, you can stream it to any device, and it is courses uh, from some of the best professors uh, and uh, lecturers around the country in a whole host of topics. Uh, almost like college in a box, if you will. You know, things you want to learn about history or science, food and wine, hobbies, 
everything that you might be interested in without the tests, if you will. Uh, there's no grading whatsoever, but uh, some amazing coursework, including uh, their first real deep dive into the realm of sports, which I think will be especially interesting to our listeners. And here it is. It's called Play Ball, the Rise of Baseball as America's Pastime. And it's created a partnership with the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. It is uh, taught by the uh, Hall's expert there on all things uh, baseball history, Bruce Markison. And uh, there are 24 lectures, uh, maybe even a few more, if I'm not mistaken, uh, that sort of traverse the uh, early history of the sport of baseball in this country. A, a bunch of things that broached to topics that uh, we've talked about here on this little show. There's uh, a lecture devoted to the uh, early era of uh, amateur baseball clubs and another lecture devoted to how they coalesced into uh, finally forming uh, what now is uh, known as organized baseball. Uh, we, there's a lecture devoted to uh, the World Series and how that got developed. There is uh, an episode uh, devoted to uh, the early ballparks of baseball called Sacred Ground. And it's just a whole host of things. Black baseball before the Negro Leagues. Uh, you name it. Uh, about the earliest days and the uh, formative years of baseball's history. You will find it in this uh, uh, tremendous course. Again, it's called Play Ball, the Rise of Baseball as America's Pastime. And again, it's created in partnership with the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. And it is yours to try and listen to and view for free. Yeah, for free. An entire month's worth of The Great Courses Plus is available to our listeners. When you go to this great here website, it's called thegreatcoursesplus.com slash good seats. Again, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash good seats. And using that URL, you will get nowhere else will you get this offer. One free month of the entire service that The Great Courses Plus offers. That's all the topics, all the different courses and lectures. You can download them. You can listen to them in audio-only format or watch them in video streaming on any device you want. But if you do nothing else, take advantage of that free month and watch every episode of Play Ball, The Rise of Baseball is America's Pastime. I guarantee you'll find it interesting. I'm about three or maybe and a half, I guess, lectures into it, and uh, I can't wait to finish them all off. Again, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash good seats. You're going to get a free month of the entire Great Courses service, and it's only yours for a limited time. So give them a try. We appreciate your doing so, and we also appreciate your listening to the rest of our conversation right now. Did, did Vec have designs on using this team in the International League as a, a real stepping stone to a franchise in the major leagues? I know you mentioned the Continental League, which was sort of a, rumbling around as an idea in the late 50s, 1960. Did he have that vision or was he just kind of doing a solid for for Solomon, who, by the way, some of our listeners might know was also the the uh, future founding owner of the St. Louis Blues of the uh, National Hockey League, but I digress. Um, did did did, did Vec kind of see this as maybe as a potential fa franchise expansion opportunity, or or was that not really the case? I think Vec at the time he really missed being out of the game, but I think he was looking at it also as a stepping stone to get into Major League Baseball, which eventually he did when he bought the Chicago White Sox. I think this was going to be uh, for him. That stepping stone, I don't think that he had, as far as I know, any interest in a 
participating in the Continental Baseball League when there was talk of a third major league. And, um, you know, he worked his magic down here. He really did. They drew uh, almost 270,000 fans, which may not seem a lot by today's standards, but in the minor league standards is at that time, it was very good attendance. So, I, okay, I guess the question is that what about then folks in Miami thinking about it being major league ready, right? That kind of success at the top tier of the AAA uh, International League and, and, you know, some really interesting uh, stuff going on in the Cuban uh, game at that time as well. Uh, I think there was a lot of intensity uh, or at least interest or at least perception that, that Miami, South Florida, hell, even Havana before Castro came to came to power could could support major league franchises. Yeah, there was definitely talk about it. Um, the sad thing about it was that it did kind of cool down. Beck left after the first season, and there was always the issues with the stadium lease. Uh, the future owners started to talk about moving the team if they didn't get an acceptable lease. Uh, they didn't have a very good concessions contract, so they weren't making a lot of money on concessions. And once Vec left and attendance tended to drop, then things, people started to kind of lose that momentum that Vec had started. The whole purpose when they were AAA, much like Havana, when the Sugar Kings were founded, they had a goal in mind of moving eventually into the major leagues. And I think Havana would have had a major league club had the political climate changed and been different than what it turned out to be, sadly. But uh, definitely, I think Miami had their eyes on that. And even when the talk of the Continental League started up, uh, eyes again kind of started interest in, well, maybe we can become a a third major league team and have a franchise here. Uh, Eventually, what happened is the third owner, by the name of Bill McDonald, the situation with the attendance and so forth and the disagreements over the lease, he moved the team to Puerto Rico temporarily and then eventually to Charleston, West Virginia. And interestingly enough, when they moved to Charleston, they still were called the Marlins, but they associated the team with the Marlins rifle, which was a popular hunting rifle in West Virginia at the time. And so they recycled the uniforms. And Mel Clark told me, he was an outfielder for the original Marlins, he actually came into possession of some of those uniforms, and they actually sewed a patch or what was the little Marlins caricature so that they could save money on uniforms. I mean, yeah, that's well, I, you know, not the first time that people try to save some bucks and and run a franchise. Um, Well, I guess speaking, maybe talk about sort of the player base. We kind of hinted at it before. Maybe we can sort of take a couple of minutes to go a little deeper. Right. So it feels to me like this, this period of time, 56 through 60, these five seasons uh, as the international league version of the Marlins, uh, was kind of a, a I won't call it a hodgepodge, but a mixture, maybe a melange, of former major leaguers, either you know, either on their way down or arguably working their way back for one more shot uh, upstairs, uh, as well as uh, a as what minor leagues tend to be sort of focused on is younger talent that, uh, in the Marlins' case, actually uh, was uh, quite significant into how many. Uh, major leaguers that they uh, they wound up playing. So I, I guess that's kind of the question is sort of how much of this was folks on the way down, so to speak, and how much of this was comprised of folks kind of on their way up? I think the original Marlins had more of a veteran presence. You had uh, from the Phillies, for instance, Mel Clark, 
Bob Bowman was on the team. They brought in Cal Abrams, who they signed from the White Sox. Uh, Gus Nyerhaus was the catcher on the original Marlins. But you had the young talent, too. Ed Boucher played first base. Uh, you had uh, Benny Tompkins and uh, Bob Michelotta. Uh, Tompkins played second base, Michelotta short. They eventually uh, brought in Woody Smith, who became an icon in Miami. He played third base. They brought him and signed him away from Havana, actually. And as the years went by, uh, I think you saw more of a youth movement. Uh, once the Orioles took over the franchise, which they did in 59 and 60, they were much more youth-oriented. Though you did see a player like, uh, for instance, Albie Pearson came down to Miami. He had hit a bad stretch during his career. He was a rookie of the year with the Washington Senators. And thanks to his manager, Al Vinson, who worked with him, he was able to resurrect his career and return to the major leagues. So I think that you saw as Vec left a slow changeover from the more veteran team to one comprised of mostly up-and-coming players. But if you go over the rosters, interestingly enough, over those five years, almost every player had either played in the big leagues or made it to the big leagues, the vast majority of players that either played within the Phillies organization or the Orioles organization. And, you know, even the Orioles organization, organization had some great players come through there, like Jerry Adair, Fred Valentine, as I said. Um, uh, Albie Pearson came through there. And they still had a sprinkling of veteran players, as an example. Uh, Mickey McDermott, who was a pitcher, kind of a wild and crazy guy, he uh, tried to resurrect his career and actually did for a brief time out of Miami. So uh, it was an, always an interesting mix of players down there. Well, you also yes, uh, uh, some some uh, names uh, that uh, had some very famous uh, uh, experiences up upstairs in the in in the majors, like Darn Cardwell, right? I mean, here's a guy who uh, I think in his uh, his debut for uh, was it the the Cubs, I guess, right in um, what fifty seven, I guess, or fifty eight, threw a no hitter. Um, yeah, first I mean, game as a Cub, he threw a no hitter, and you had one group of guys who I, I got to mention. Yeah. These known as the Dalton Gang. From 1956, you had Turk Farrell, Jim Bear Owens, and Seth Moorhead, who all eventually went on to big league careers. Turk probably had the most successful, but they were a wild and crazy bunch. And when they came to Miami, uh, I guess in 55, they had gotten in trouble because they had beaten up a sports writer in a bar up in Syracuse. And when they came here, they were known for their antics. And even with Satchel, Satchel and them would go back and forth you know, uh, they'd nail Satchel's shoes to the floor, or they'd, uh, or they'd put uh, cockroaches in his cleats, and Satchel would dump water on their heads. But this was all done in good fun. They all had a lot of fun. Satchel, as you know, was a free spirit. He was a guy that really liked to have fun, and his teammates all loved him. So everything was in good spirits, and uh, the Dalton gang made their mark on Miami. Of course, they were known for their partying and antics outside of the ballpark. In fact, that season, Jim Owens, actually, there was a controversy. He came, was scheduled to pitch one night, and Don Osborne wouldn't let him pitch because he showed up to the park uh, a few drinks on the south side. So we'll just put it that way. Um, and he came out later and apologized for his actions and so forth. But uh, that Dalton gang, I guess, in baseball history, they made a niche for themselves. Uh, after they made it to the big leagues too, so, but a lot of that uh, had its roots in Miami. 
So aside from the crowds, you know, sort of coming in those first couple of years and then sort of uh, kind of sort of fading a little bit as uh, actually a little quite a bit uh, as the years sort of went on. What what was uh, I, I got the the media seemed to be pretty smitten with this team, right? It was almost like they were Miami's major league team, so to speak. You know, that's almost an extension of the of what they kind of get to experience during uh, the majors, uh, uh, you know, annual spring training exploits down in South Florida. Oh, very much so. In fact, when you go through the sports pages of the time, right up until the team left, they were at the front of the sports page all season long. And uh, you would get biographical uh, articles that were written, stories. There was a lot of, you know, behind-the-scenes notes. Uh, very much so, very much so out in the forefront. And this really carried back, clear back to baseball's beginnings in the Miami area, going back to the outlaw leagues of 1913 and 14 and, and the first official minor league team, the Miami Hustlers in 27, and even the Class C and Class B International, uh, Florida International League, which was bred out of the old uh, Florida East Coast League. You had the Miami Sun Sox and the Miami Beach Flamingos were front and center on the sports page. And uh, that carried right on through until the Marlins, 56 through 60. And you know, the coverage was as good, if not better, than Major League Baseball. In fact, when you would go through the sports pages, they actually were ahead. They were more out front than the Major League games were many times. Why do you think uh, then, given all of that, right, you've got some some quality play uh, you've got uh, quite a bit of hype, certainly in that first season uh, under Vec. Uh, people like Satchel Page, who played what three seasons with the Marlins, uh, all that media coverage and attention. Um, so, what what happened then? I mean, it's five years. It seems like you had a lot of good momentum and a market, arguably well moneyed and 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 full of of fans that would likely on paper be ready to support some type of major league franchise. What kind of happened near the end there in 1960 when, you know, it would seem like to the outsider looking back uh, that, that, you know, Miami would have had a shot to kind of go to that next level. I agree. But what happened is after the first season, Sid Solomon sold the club because of health reasons and uh, George B. Stewart bought the club and he invested a lot of money in the club. He was a, the head of a communications company, a lot of money backing the uh, Marlins. He wasn't afraid to spend bucks on the team. They brought in some talent that, you know, like a Virgil trucks, they thought was going to be very productive and wasn't some of the moves that they made when they brought these veteran players in didn't materialize, but a lot of people were turned off by the constant bickering over this on the off season of the stadium lease and the team threatening to move if they didn't get an acceptable lease. They were always negotiating back and forth. Um, once the first season passed, they had losing records uh, the following four seasons, so they did make the playoffs the second season despite a losing record. And uh, so they got fan apathy. In studying the history of Miami baseball, going back to the beginning, there's almost this pattern. There's this initial excitement of the team. And you have a real good attendance during the first year, and then things kind of taper off. And in Miami, it's unique here because there are so many distractions here, too. Back in those days, you had high lie and horse racing and the dog racing and the beach and entertainment outside of the ballpark. 
So the Marlins were always, and the teams in the past, like the Sun Sox, Flamingos, uh, so forth, were always competing against these outside um, distractions of entertainment. So it was always a challenge. Now, Bill Veck was able to overcome a lot of that when he came, but he was a unique personality. But the main issue was, uh, you know, as I said, the uh, constant bickering back and forth and dealing with the stadium issue and the threats of moving. That always played heavily on the fans. And, you know, people, it kind of hurt the, uh, the loyalty aspect between the fans and the franchises because it was always, well, are they going to be here next year? And do I really want to invest in this? And so eventually that's what led to the demise of the Miami affiliation right there. I think if you had had a force like Bill Vec who would have, would have stayed on somebody of that caliber and really, and, and a commitment was made that the team is staying, they're not going anywhere no matter what, I think the outcome would have been much different. But unfortunately, you know, the negative side of it played against them in the end. Well, yeah, I also think it's interesting, too, because you kind of fast forward to today. I mean, you know, um, and I've seen this with uh, the speculation uh, around the new um, uh, inter-Miami uh, Major League Soccer franchise, arguably uh, the franchise that preceded it in Major League Soccer, the Miami Fusion, which ironically never played in Miami proper. Uh, but, you know, I think the speculation still surrounds now. Uh, uh, those themes still are, you know, encircling the, the Marlins of today, right? A lot of a lot of conjecture, a lot of uh, hand-wringing about, you know, the stadium and, and the, 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 the play and, and, and all the other distractions, right, of Miami, which is a, uh, a, a huge, bustling, multicultural and, and, and scintillatingly exciting metropolitan area. And, and obviously, oh, by the way, pretty darn good weather year-round. It seems to me that, that, that those inklings were, you know, are not necessarily new uh, to that region about supporting a, a professional sports franchise, let alone a baseball one. Yeah, and I think really it surrounds all the franchises here. Of course, in Miami, uh, everybody loves a winner, and attendance always goes up when teams are winning. You would even see that with the Miami Heat. When they were winning championships, you couldn't buy a ticket. When they had losing seasons, you know, it wasn't so much so. You could get a ticket, there was openings. The Dolphins go through the same thing. When they're winning, their attendance is much better. When they're losing like they are now, you know, you watch the game on TV and you see a lot of empty seats. Um, it's, uh, it's really a fair-weather town here. Uh, I've attended some Marlins games, and, you know, some of the games, I've, uh, uh, I grew up a Pirates fan. Pittsburgh Pirates, and I try to go to a Pirates game every year, at least one. And when I go to the game, you see more people in Pirates jerseys than you do in Marlins jerseys. So you have a lot of people here also that are transplants, but not necessarily do they come out to the games. And so um, one of the problems with the Marlins, of course, right now is they're, you know, they're not, they don't have a winning record. I think they're going in the right direction. They're trying to get there, but it's going to take some time. And, um, you know, as always, there's South Beach here, there's the beach, and there's so many things going on that it's really hard for them. It's really, it's a difficult proposition for ownership. Um, and also, you know, in the past, in our prior ownership group, uh, we went through that where they were threatening to move the team to Portland. Uh, there were some threats to move it somewhere else. And so over the years and with the player, a lot of player transactions, you know, we have a championship, and then they tear down the team, 
and you go from a championship team to a team that's not competitive, it's you know left a, a sour taste, unfortunately, in a lot of people's mouths. And I think this new ownership group, once they address this, it's going to take a few years and try to get people to get confidence back in the team again. How much uh, uh, recognition, aside from the name Marlins, which, again, was kind of a revelation to me, and again, I'm not a, a Miami uh, or South Florida native, so you know, not knowing some of the history of this, the name Marlins prior to the current incarnation uh, of today's team. But how much of today's team, and maybe it's new early now with the, the new management, um, but how, how, much of, how much recognition has there been, if any, of the uh, the Marlins, shall we say, that preceded the current version, has there been any throwbacks or 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 uh, tip of the old sort of uh, uh, cap of recognition about what came prior to what exists today at all? The Marlins themselves have had very very few games in the past where they wore the throwback jerseys of the original Marlins. Uh, the prior ownership group did have a a few games. If anything, they've gone back more to the '93. Florida Marlins uniforms, the, the, the teal and the black, they've done more of that than anything. Uh, one of the things that when Barbara and I wrote the book is we're trying to bring out the people is this history of the Marlins and teams prior to the Marlins, that there's this whole history of Miami baseball. Within the stadium itself, uh, if you go on the third base side over by the concession stands, they have a section there about the Orange Bowl, and they do present the satchel page. It shows him uh, on the mound in the Orange Bowl with a big crowd behind him. But there is not a lot of recognition, nor do people in general have much understanding of the history of where Miami Marlins, or which was originally the Florida Marlins baseball, where this all came. Because really, the original Miami Marlins set the stage for what would eventually become the Florida Marlins slash Miami Marlins. And that's where really people started getting in their minds with, in addition to spring training, one day we're going to have a major league team here. And though it took several more years after the original Marlins left, that seed was planted. And eventually, of course, uh, in 1993, we finally got a franchise here, the Florida Marlins. So you mentioned at the top of the show, uh, you know, you, and this is not the first time we've heard this, uh, this rationale about why people, uh, you know, have, have devoted time and effort to either write a book or investigate uh, its 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 current fandom, uh, and wondering what uh, was prior to, uh, and and the curiosity behind that. That there's something genuine and and uh, pure about that, right? Um, and and not necessarily, you know, looking at it solely as an historical exercise. Uh, but I guess what I'm I'm curious about is when you began this journey to kind of go back and sort of explore what preceded today's Marlins franchise. What did you what did you learn that that you know I'm sure some of this stuff was pretty straightforward and basic and you know teams and players and and you know the generic uh, sort of baseball lore. But what things kind of stood out or did you discover that really surprised you when you were going back and looking at at the history prior, in particular, this International League uh, uh, version back in the late 50s. Anything that jumped out is kind of unique that kind of really raised your eyebrows when you were going back and, and doing all the all the hard work to find out about it? Oh, we, it was literally a treasure trove of information when we started digging into it. And when you started discovering some of the players who passed through here, 
some of the issues that baseball dealt with over the years. For instance, uh, uh, when I'm speaking with Maury Wills, Maury Wills was in here down in Miami in 1953, and he roomed with Clyde Paris, and segregation was at the time. They had to stay separate from the players when they traveled, separate from the players when they were in Miami. And he told about the obstacles that he had to overcome uh, dealing with uh, segregation and, and being separated. Uh, one of the great stories was uh, a shortstop, Chico Fernandez, who eventually played in the major leagues uh, with the Brooklyn Dodgers, Phillies, and Tigers. Uh, he talked about uh, he was on the 52 Miami Sun Sox, and he was a Cuban ball player. But uh, sometimes when he would travel on the road, he was a lighter-complected player, but his skin color came in the factors when he would travel, say, to Tampa or uh, St. Pete. And so he said he would actually have to put some powder on his face so that he was acceptable to stay in the hotel with his teammates. Um, eventually, segregation changed. And a lot of that was helpful to that change was Satchel Page because people were so accepting of him. Um, uh, the Florida International League is just full of, of great stories. My father-in-law, Emilio Cabrera, was a catcher in the Florida International League. Uh, he played for the Tampa Smokers, West Palm Beach Indians, and the Miami Beach Flamingos. And he uh, played with some real characters, Ducky Medwick, was a man, one of his managers, and, and one of the great characters of Miami baseball of all time, Pepper Martin, the wild horse of the Osage. He managed in the Florida International League. He managed the Sun Sox and the Flamingos, and he had confrontations with umpires. But yet he was a, a very Christian man. He didn't, uh, he didn't drink. You know, he would smoke a cigar now and again. And uh, he had actually was suspended once, in Havana, he uh, got so upset, they were in a heated pennant race, he choked an umpire. But he was so beloved in the city, fans loved him because of his interaction with the fans no matter where he went. And he was a very down-to-earth guy. And he actually came back and managed the original Miami Marlins in 1959. And when he came back, it was like a homecoming. People were just went crazy because he came back. His popularity just had sit, remained all those years because the last year that he actually managed in Miami was the Flamingos at Miami Beach in 1952, though he did manage in Fort Lauderdale in 1953 also. But he was quite a character, and uh, players that I, that I spoke with for the book uh, just remembered him so fondly, so what a great manager he was, that he stressed playing the game at 110%, but also to play the game for fun. And uh, he, he would take the players on fishing trips. He loved to fish. He was an outdoorsman. And um, uh, he was just one of those characters that uh, he had so many stories around him and things that he did, uh, meeting with the fans and, and telling country stories to fans uh, and his, about his hunting exploits in Missouri and Arkansas and so forth. And he was such a down-home guy that fans just really loved him. What things uh, elude you uh, in sort of filling in uh, the story of, of of the Marlins, in particular the uh, the AAA International League version? Are, are there there pieces missing or, or or questions that are still sort of outstanding? I mean, your book is fairly comprehensive and, and kudos, but uh, are you know there are, there's got to be bits or pieces or, or curiosities maybe still 
still left out there? Or, or do you think you've kind of comprehensively uh, encapsulated all that or or some other stories maybe lingering out there that uh, you just haven't been able to cement yet? Well, there were some stories that when I spoke to different players who had played on the team, of course, there were certain stories that they asked that I not share with my audience. Um, you know, ball players they live a an interesting life. Uh, you had your groupies and so forth. So I didn't I didn't go into any of that into the book. Uh, my when I wrote the Forgotten Marlins, which is the first book, I wanted to do it more as a tribute to the original team. Uh, there was, you know, a lot of funny stories, a lot of them surrounding around Satchel Paige. Uh, you know, Satchel was a very free spirit, and there was games that, say, he had pitched the day before that he didn't come out to the park. He would only come out to the park when he felt like it. Uh, he would listen at home on the radio, and he'd tell his wife, Lahoma, well, I think they're going to need me. I'm going to have to go in and pitch relief, and he'd show up around the fifth or sixth inning and start getting ready to play. Uh, he didn't, he didn't, um, like traveling on an airplane or going to Canada much. He really liked the warm weather much better than the cold weather. And he especially didn't like Toronto and he had some issues up there. And I tried to uncover exactly what his issue was in, uh, Toronto. He would refuse to sit in his rocking chair there. He would not do it. He'd do it at every ballpark, but there. So apparently at some point in his career, he had some type of a negative experience that he wouldn't uh, join in on that. Uh, but uh, he and he had a good friend, Luke Easter, who also played in the International League. And sometimes Satchel would travel by car to games where his team would fly charter flights to Havana or they'd fly to Montreal or uh, Buffalo, wherever they were playing their next games. But Satchel, a lot of times, would drive a car, and him and Luke Easter would trade cars. One of the great stories also about um, Satchel I got from Whitey Herzog that I forgot the park now. It's not coming to me, but there was a hole in the fence. And when Whitey first came down to Miami, uh, he was very curious about Satchel and his legend. So him and Dick Bunker, who was a pitcher on the Marlins at the time, we're in the outfield, and this this hole in the wall, basically, on the outfield wall, if a player on an opposing team or home team would hit a home run through the hole, they would get $10,000 in cash. Well, of course, the hole was not much bigger than a baseball. So Whitey approached Satchel about his legend and so forth, and they made a bet between each other, and they uh, it was a bottle of Old Forester. And Whitey says, I'll bet you you can't put the ball through that hole. So they measured off 60 feet, 6 inches. And Satchel, you know, he didn't even, I don't think he even threw a warm-up pitch. And the first pitch went up, burned around in the hole and came out. And Whitey was, like, amazed that he even did that. The second pitch, Satchel put it right through the hole and got the bottle of Old Forester and won the bet. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it, uh, it's amazing. I mean, and and obviously the the career of Satchel Paige, you know, goes goes above and beyond those those three years that he was with the, with the Marlins. But but look, you, you got to think that uh, what a what a a combination of a player and a legend and and frankly a star attraction uh, that in in the middle of Miami, which is just you know arguably an entertainment capital in its own right. Uh, it must have been magical, and I, we we actually started the show off with a, a clip that we found uh, from the uh, the archives down there at Miami Dade uh, uh, College, 
uh, of an interview he did. He's, you know, he clearly had the gift of gab as well. And, and he was, you know, just an entertaining personality beyond just his uh, amazing feats on the, uh, on the baseball diamond. Oh yeah. And he really, he knew how to market himself before that was even popular with ballplayers as it is now. And um, Satchel was beloved in Miami. Uh, that's where many players like Woody Smith, who was another one who was really revered. Um, Satchel, uh, one of the great uh, things of, uh, his career when he was here in Miami. And a lot of people didn't know this, was he also did a lot of things with the kids in the area. Uh, you might find it on YouTube or on one of the channels there, uh, him showing the kids how to pitch and so forth, and he had photos. But Satchel didn't put that out there, but he did things like that in the community that didn't get a lot of publicity. And, uh, you know, I heard so many stories where, where he, Satchel would talk to the kids at the ballpark and uh, he would do a, a little exhibition at uh, where the uh, relief pitchers, the bullpen. And as an example, Gus Nyerhaus, who was the catcher on the original Marlins, he would tell him, you know, to go down 60 feet, six inches. And he'd said, uh, put something on the ground for home plate. So Gus would put either a gum wrapper or a hot dog wrapper on the ground. And he'd just hold his glove in a position and Satch would hit it just consistently 10 straight times. Gus wouldn't even have to move the glove. So at this time in the Satch's career, of course, his fastball probably didn't have the same zip, but he really pitched on guile and control. He, Everybody said that he, they couldn't believe the control he had. I mean, he without even warming up, he would just, the catcher wouldn't have to move his glove. He would hit it nine out of ten times. It was amazing. All right, I got to ask you this one last question, and I'll let you promote. Um, in your efforts, in your in your uh, your search of history, I got to think you came across a bunch of pieces of memorabilia and and such uh, along the way. I, I, have you found yourself collecting and hoarding some of those things, or is there a place where where one, if one is in the South Florida area, one could actually see probably the you know uh, the best array of original Marlins uh, stuff, or is it kind of scattered out there, or is it, frankly, there isn't a lot of stuff? No, in fact, the old, when you go past, go back in time, past 1956, it's very difficult to find anything. Uh, I do have a Miami Sun Sox program from 52 when they had the great pennant race between the Flamingos and the Sun Sox. I have a, a Miami Beach Flamingos program from the 50s, uh, and I have some photos, but I haven't collected a lot of memorabilia. Um, I did interview several of the players, spoke with them when I was doing the book, and Barbara and I were working on it. And uh, so I have a lot of great memories from those interviews that I recorded on cassette tape. I'm a little bit old school. I use cassette tapes. And, um, you know, just the memories of talking to these ballplayers, such as Gene Zabrinsky and uh, Bill uh, Bill Enos, from the 46 Sun Sox, Zabrinsky played third base for the Flamingos. Uh, getting to talk to like Maury Wills and Gail Wade, uh, so many of these players from those days, it was just fascinating to speak with these guys. And the original Marlins, when I uh, did the book, the, so many of those guys that I got a chance to, to get to know and talk to. Uh, we recently lost, in fact, Jim Archer, who pitched for the later version of the Marlins, uh, pitched for the Kansas City A's. What a great guy. I mean, just the memories that I can take 
some some quality people such as Jim, and uh, getting to know um, different guys like Mel Clark, Bob Bowman, uh, Albie Pearson. What a character! What a great guy to talk to. Uh, when I got to speak with going back with Maury Wills, and him sharing his experiences. Uh, one of the great things uh, that came to light, a lot of people don't even know that Maury Wills played in Miami. And even Satchel Page, so many books have been written about him. And not a lot of people know about his Miami experience. So getting to talk with his teammates was just a gem and hearing stories that had never been told before about Satchel and how beloved he was by his teammates and how the ownership, you know, kind of let uh, Satchel Page be a free spirit and, and they realized what a importance he had in baseball and the legend that he was. It was just, it was phenomenal. I, I kind of wish I would have collected some more memorabilia, but it is very difficult to come by, surprisingly. All right, there it is. You fancy yourself a Miami Marlins fan, uh, although I don't know if you really want to admit it uh uh, currently, as uh, the Marlins just uh, finished wrapping up uh, their second worst uh, finish in their uh, their history since uh, becoming a major league franchise uh, in 1993, uh, there is a rich, though, history uh, behind uh, what is now the Miami Marlins. And uh, clearly, uh, good times uh, lie ahead, uh, even though it seems uh, not so much uh, in the near term, but uh, we uh, encourage you to get out of the doldrums of losing 105 games this season and and getting uh, copies of uh, these two great books uh, that Sam and his wife Barbara have put together. Uh, the first, uh, which came out in 2013, which is kind of what we're uh, we were circling on most in this conversation, it's called "The Forgotten Marlins: A Tribute to the 1956 to 1960 Original Miami Marlins." Uh, that, uh, of course, was uh, published by Scarecrow Press, and I think is an imprint now of uh, Roman and Littlefield. Uh, and the, the current book that just came out in April uh, called Baseball Under the Palms, The History of Miami Minor League Baseball, the early years, 19, excuse me, 1892 to 1960, which is a more comprehensive look beyond those five years of the Marlins International League AAA version. Uh, and that uh, book is uh, under the imprint of Sunbury Press, and uh, as you heard, uh, uh, Barbara uh, Cabrera and Sam Zigner will be uh, out there promoting that book in the Miami area, uh, as well as hopefully elsewhere. And of course, you can uh, not only get that book, those books, uh, in uh, lots of different forms, wherever good books are found. But of course, if you want to help us here on the, uh, the little podcast, get a couple of uh, quarters and dimes and nickels of love, by all means, just search up this episode. Uh, with Sam Signer uh, on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com uh, and uh, you will find a link conveniently to uh, purchase said books uh, from our website and we'll get a little affiliate fee for doing so and uh, we'd appreciate that so much as well as uh, Sam and Barbara will of course for you buying those books and uh, of course on goodseatsstillavailable.com you can uh, do all kinds of great st- things stuff uh, by uh, finding all the old episodes. You can stream them there. You can uh, download them from there. Uh, do whatever you want. Uh, you can also find all of our social media feeds, of course. Uh, on Twitter, you'll find us at Good Seats Still. On Instagram, you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. You'll find us on Facebook as well. You can also, on our website, click over and uh, send us an email or do so directly if you'd like, by all means, at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And of course, on the website, you will find a link 
to our weekly newsletter, which we send out uh, to uh, folks who are subscribed a couple of days in advance to know what uh, the current uh, forthcoming episode will be. Uh, Be the first in the know by signing up for that little newsletter right there. Again, all to be found uh, on our website again at goodseatsstillavailable.com. One last thing, of course, a tip of the Miami Marlins cap this week to our friend Jerry Payne, uh, who uh, puts all of our pieces together. He's, of course, at Podfly Productions. And uh, if you want to find out more about them and him and what they do in the world of podcast production, you can find out more about them at podfly.net. All right. We uh, thank you kindly for listening this uh, this long and this week uh, to our episode. And uh, we look forward to sharing more great uh, shows with you uh, in the weeks and months to come. Until then, our ticket window is now closed and we bid you a fond adieu. Thank you for listening and uh, take care, everybody. We'll see you soon. <laughs>